Already did that. I don't believe we have Rainbow Village tonight. That was the message that I got. So we are uh, all together this evening. Let me turn on my magic box. Um, oh, the invitation song. 67. 67 for the invitation song. Thank you, Brother Brown. Appreciate that. So tonight... And for a few uh, Sunday nights in the upcoming weeks, Jeremy and I want to do a series on hard questions. These are questions that are either hard for Christians or they're questions that are hard for the world that Christians need to have answers for. Either way, uh, it's good for us as a church body to train ourselves to know at least a few things we can say when people raise questions. One of the characteristics of the age in which we live that's maybe different than what it has been in the past is the willingness for culture in general and for specific people to challenge the claims of Christianity, sometimes in a very hostile, angry way. And I just want to say this before I get into the details of what I want to discuss tonight. How you give an answer in these situations probably is a bigger message than what you specifically say. How you give an answer. When when my faith is challenged, that challenges me because faith matters to me. You know, if I didn't care as much as I do about God and the church, when somebody mocks God, or makes fun of Christianity, I might not take it so personal. It might not hurt me so much. But it does hurt me when somebody speaks derogatorily about God, when somebody speaks in a blasphemous way about Jesus and about what we believe. That hurts me. And if I let it, my temperature starts to rise. What happens when I'm defensive like that, when my temperature is rising like that, when they've already opened the floodgates of derogatory speech, of insult and mockery. What's what's a natural fleshly response? I want to get right back in their face. I want to make them feel what I just felt. And so I want to find a way to mock them. I want to find a way to insult them. I want to find a way to shut them up. And, And I may do that out of my flesh, And in doing that, I may cause a lot of harm. So before we get into the specifics of what I want to talk about tonight, I just want to lay that out as a rule. I'll try and mention that a few more times as we go through this series on Sunday evenings. How you give your answer, how you give it, probably speaks louder than the specifics of the answer that you give. In everything, people, we are in a battle for the hearts and minds of those that Satan has tricked and clouded and filled with hate. When they speak hateful, angry thoughts about Christianity, that's the voice of Satan. We're trying to get them free from that. Let's not pile on with more satanic words. Let's let's talk to them about the love of God and let's talk in the tones of the love of God. All right. Tonight, I want to talk about one of those hard questions, a question that is increasingly being thrown up. And if you're in a workplace or in a school uh, where there are non-believers, this one's likely to come up. How could a loving God, a God who creates us and loves us, 
How could he have commanded the destruction of the Canaanites? We just read the passage in Deuteronomy chapter 20, uh, which is one of several. Um, how could he have said, you have to go in and you have to kill everything? In these cities that are part of the inheritance that I'm giving you, you go in and kill, up, kill everything. How can God have done that? Doesn't that make God sort of a moral monster? Doesn't it make him sort of a bloodthirsty war god, really different from the God of Jesus that we read about in the New Testament? And that's the way the challenge usually comes. How can God have commanded that? What am I going to say when people throw that up in my face? If I don't punch them, which we shouldn't do, what am I going to say? Well, I'm going to give you an answer in maybe three parts, and, and if, if any of this is helpful to you, that's good, and if it's not helpful, that's fine. Do, do your own thing. But maybe this will give us a few words to put into our mouths when these situations come up, if they come up for us. I think the first question is, what does the Bible actually, does the Bible give us any guidance as to why God commanded the destruction of the Canaanites? I think, I think he really did command it. I think those passages are there and we have to deal with them. Does the Bible tell us any reason why the Canaanites were uh, destroyed or why the command went out to destroy them? Well, and the answer is, yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Pardon? Pardon? To keep from corrupting the Israelites is given in, in several of the passages. That if you leave them in the land, they're going to be a corruption to you. And that's one of the minor reasons. But the main reason is the Canaanites themselves are very wicked people. Back in the story of Abraham in Genesis, Genesis chapter 15, it's one of those Really great passages. It's the passage where we get, uh, <clears throat> he believed the Lord and it was credited to him at righteousness, as righteousness. Genesis 15. A little bit later down, God gives a prediction to Abram, Abraham. And he says this in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 16. Genesis 15, verses 13 through 16. He said to Abraham, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them for 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. And afterwards, they will come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good age, but in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites uh, is another word for the people living in the land of Canaan, the Canaanites. The, the wickedness or iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, God says. This is 400 years in advance. Are there wicked, is there already wickedness going on amongst the Amorites, the Canaanites? Yes. But it hasn't reached the point of intolerability. God is patient. He doesn't delight, as Ezekiel says, he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. So he's giving them a, a long opportunity. But one of the reasons why the Canaanites were destroyed is because they were wicked. And this is what Moses reiterates to the Israelites when he gives these commands about why the Canaanites have to be removed. 
uh, Deuteronomy chapter 9. Why don't you turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 9, look at verses 1 through 5 with me. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Deuteronomy 9, verses 1 through 5. Hear, O Israel. You are to cross over Jordan today and go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourself, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak. Therefore understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes before you as a consuming fire, He will destroy them and drive them down before you, bring them down before you, so that you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said to you. Verse 4, do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me to possess this land. In other words, Moses says, when this happens, don't think it's because the Israelites are all that that they're great and righteous, Uh, they are not, Moses says. You're not, in fact, the rest of chapter 9, it contains a long list of the things that they've done wrong to prove that you're not terribly righteous yourselves. You're not terribly righteous yourselves. Do not think that because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. It's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to his fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, it is the wickedness of the Canaanites that brought about their destruction or the command that they be destroyed. As it worked out, the Israelites were never terribly faithful, and so the Canaanites were never completely destroyed. And they were there, and just as was said, they became a snare to the Israelites. So in other words, what do we have here? We have a case that's very similar to the case of God using the Assyrians and later the Babylonians to come in and punish the Israelites when the Israelites reach their, you know, place of intolerability to God. When they became so wicked that they were kind of beyond uh, return, God brought the Babylonians, God brought the Assyrians, and drove them out of the land just as the Canaanites are now being driven out of the land. So the first answer that we give to this, and this is not an answer that uh, unbelievers are going to, understand very well, but it fits into the biblical pattern. God sometimes uses wicked people to punish even more wicked people. God used the the Babylonians, and he used the Assyrians to punish the Israelites, and he's now, at this point, using the Israelites to punish the Canaanites, to bring about their destruction, and to give that command. So that's the first answer that I think we need to be aware of. Is that okay, though? God is a loving God. 
God is a patient God. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. Is it okay? Can we square that, our picture of God's justice, with the destruction of whole peoples? Does anybody have the right to command the destruction of a whole group of people, even the women and the children, which is what's commanded here? The children didn't do anything wrong. They're not wicked. So how does God issue a command to wipe them out too? You read my notes. Very good. Michelle said, um, by the way, Jerry and Barbara Campbell are here, longtime minister up in uh, Enid, and Jerry told me that he knew that there were at least two people at Wilshire that he was familiar with because he performed their wedding, and that's Michelle and Jeff. So anyway, welcome. We're glad you guys are here, by the way. Uh, yeah, Michelle said, God has authority over us. And that is actually the short answer. No one except God has the right to give the commands that are in Deuteronomy. No government has the right to declare this kind of a, you know, wipe these people out command. No individual has that right. Only God has that right. And Sometimes Christians and other religious people have, have said, well, since God can do it, we can declare it too. And there have been the equivalent of Christian jihads declared to wipe out people in Africa and in America and in other places using these as justification. That is wicked. That is evil. It's terribly evil because it uses God as a justification for a land grab or some other evil activity. And, and we've got to make a clear distinction. God, on the other hand, is not us. God is not a human being. This is the long version of this answer. A lot of the problems that we have with the destruction of the Canaanites or the other acts of judgment that God brings in the Old Testament, a lot of the problem stems from not having a big enough picture of who God really is, in my opinion. I think we have a shrunken down, humanized view of who God is. He's just like one of us. He just has more powers. He's like Superman or Thor. You know, he's, he, he, and, and it's true. Not even Superman, not even Thor. Just because you have the power to do something does not give you the moral right. Why does God have the moral right to pronounce judgment? Why does he have that right to an extent that no human being ever will have? Because he is not a part of creation. He is the creator. Faye said it. He is the creator. There is no human analogy that perfectly fits what it means to be a creature of a creator. You know, I, I owe my life to my mother and dad. If they, if they hadn't uh, had me as a child, I wouldn't be here. 
And so they have a certain amount of power over me. Uh, they could punish me. They could bring me up. And, and they did a pretty good job, I think. Despite my efforts, they did a pretty good job. And they had some degree of authority over me because they sort of brought me into existence. But that isn't anything like the way that I depend on God for my existence. My parents themselves were dependent on God. They were dependent on the laws of nature, the laws of pregnancy and gestation and all of that in order to bring me into existence. They themselves were being sustained by the creation blessings of God when they brought me into existence. They don't have the right to just declare, you know, my life null and void. Does God? Does God? Is there anybody in here who has any M&Ms tonight? Is there anybody? Because I do. I have some. They're awesome, by the way. I was thinking of just eating them in front of you. But instead, I'm going to give some of How many do you have? How many M&Ms do you have? Would you hold out your hand, please? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight M&Ms for you, Michelle. Lucas, you want some m and Do you have any M&Ms, first of all? You do not. You promise? Would you hold out your hand? Hold it out. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten M&Ms for you, Lucas. Say what? I did count them out. Faye, you're feeling awfully talkative. Would you like some M&Ms tonight? All right, here we go. That's right. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. No. <laughs> These are my M&Ms. I can do with them what I want. We have another guest here. Beth Walker is visiting with us. Beth, do you have any M&Ms? Would you like some M&Ms? Sure. Okay, good. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight M&Ms for you. I'm getting, I'm getting the no sign from Amanda. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Oh, Amanda herself? Oh, Liam? Okay, Liam. Is that okay? One, you got a small hand, man. Two, three, four. Four M&Ms for you. Okay. Well, I could go on for a while, but I'm sure y'all don't want me to. Um, I gave 15 M&Ms. To somebody, who did I give 50? To Faye, she's my favorite. Uh, I, gave, I gave eight, I think, to Lucas, seven maybe to Michelle, four to Leah, and various other. I gave you 10? How many do you still have? Four left? All right. Good boy. Good boy. <clears throat> Those are my M&Ms. I can do with them what I want. Did I do wrong 
to Liam just because I only gave him four. Or to Beth because I only gave her eight. Or did I, you know, do something special because I gave Faye 15. No, they're my M&Ms. I can do with them what I want. And part of our problem, I mean, seriously, this is actually one of the deep problems of the human relationship with God, is that we think the days of our lives belong to us when in fact they are totally gratuitous gifts from God. They are, it is like God just handing us another day. The old Christians used to pray like that. Thank you for a new day. I don't think we think that anymore. At least sometimes we don't. When we lapse into the modern way of thinking, we don't even realize that anymore. Thank you that I got up this morning and my heart was still beating. Thank you that I got up this morning and gravity still worked and the sun still shone. Thank you for another day because I know as a creature, I have no power to make that happen. I have no power without your sustaining blessings, God. Every day is a gift from you. If God gives one person 98 years and gives another person four days, is God generous or not? He is our creator. He has given a gift to both of those people. Different links, perhaps. And we're sad because, especially one that only lives four days, we say, well, that's not the normal, and it makes us sadder, and it's more of a tragedy. And all of that is true. None of that means that God has done anything unjust. He is giving life. He can give exactly as much of it as he wants. So we get this question about the Canaanites totally backwards. I think. Yes, they are wicked, and the reason God states that he calls judgment upon them is that they are wicked, and he's punishing them, as is his right as judge, and he's taking away their land and giving it to the Israelites, as is his right, because that's his land. He can do with it what he wants as well. But we, get, we say, you know, every case of suffering like this, every case of death like this, we need to find some moral reason. This person was bad, and that's why they lived such a short life, and their life was cut shorter. Or this person suffered this way because of some evil that they did. And that's thinking like God's a human being, or he's one of us, and he's not. Every day is a gift from God, and if God gives me four days... All I can say to him, now I may complain about that to you, but all I can say to him is thank you for those four days. Thank you very much for those four days. God can wipe out America today, and he doesn't have to justify it in terms of the evil that America does. He can wipe out anyone today, and as creator, he has not done anything wrong. He is granting life. He just said, I'm going to stop granting it. That's all it is. And if we could help people to at least picture that idea of God, we would go a long way to correcting not just this mistake, but a lot of mistakes that people have about what is our real status with this being that we give the name of God to. He is 
far, far, far greater than we think he is. He is far greater than we, uh, than sometimes our calculations will allow us to believe. Acts 17, verses 24 through 28, Paul kind of makes this point. He's talking to the Athenians, who are the equivalent of the intelligentsia of the ancient world. And he says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. How much of what I have comes to me from God? according to Paul. All of it. Every day. All of it. He continues. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-apportioned times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they would seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him. Though he's not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, We are also his offspring. When we call God the heavenly father, that is true, but it is very, very limited. My dependence on my father is a small, tiny thing compared to my dependence on God. Every day. He keeps the world turning. Every day he sustains it in existence. Every day is essentially an ongoing new creation. And he doesn't have to keep it going at all. We think that we own our lives. We think that our lives belong to us. They do not. So the fact is that God could have removed the Canaanites by any means he chose and given their land to the Israelites, and, and, and we could not say God has done anything wrong. There's no, there's no injustice there for us to complain about. We'd like to know what his purposes are. We'd like to understand him. That's good. I think he wants us to probe and try to find those things out. And sometimes he gives us hints as he has here. But he doesn't need to justify himself to us. And it's not just because of his power, which is unlimited. It's because we are so completely his. We live and move and have our being in him. He has given us everything. And so... I think the answer to this question, if people do ask us about the Canaanites, is to say, well, the Bible says the Canaanites were punished the same way Israel later is punished. They are uh, wiped out, driven out of the land the same way that Israel later is is done that. And God is carrying out his judgment, which is his right as judge. But he doesn't need that justification. God is God. I think we would be better off, many of us, if we came to realize just how completely dependent we are on God. And if we can help other people see that, I think that we will go a long way towards helping the world to understand what it means to be in a relationship with God and what it means to be cut off from a relationship with God. Tonight, I just want to ask here at the end, how is your relationship with God? Where are you in your walk with God? If you're a Christian, he's called you to be with him. If that's getting a little ragged, if that's getting a little weak, it's time for you to correct that. 
The most important thing in your life is what is your relationship with God. It is time for you to make that your priority if you haven't been. If you've never received the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, it's time for you to make that change. Right now as we stand and sing, why don't you come and do what needs to be done.